Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us today, that all of our conversations will be to enlighten our minds about you, your methods, your principles, and how we can cooperate to, to tell the truth about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number uh, nine in our quarterly, Health and Healing. And the lesson title this week is Temperance. And let's jump over and start with Sunday's lesson. And the lesson identifies for us Noah as the first person on record to get drunk. What do you all think about that? That whole concept. Have you ever heard any theories about what, what the deal was? Here's Noah, this righteous man, described as being you know perfect and righteous according to uh, according to the scripture prior, you know, the 120 years he's preaching, and, and as soon as the uh, flood is over, the next thing we find he's getting drunk. Right then there with all those animals, that's probably neat. Well, some it's all speculative. It's all speculative, but some people have speculated that um, in the aftermath of the flood, there was a major environmental shift and that uh, fermentation processes were altered and that uh, his uh, wine uh, suddenly was fermenting either at a more intensity or a higher rate than it had before and it caught him off guard. That's what some people speculate. Can't prove it. I don't know if it's true or not. What do you, have you all ever heard that, that theory? Yes. Yeah. I'm very comfortable that he made an error in judgment and chose to do something that he should not have done because uh, being a righteous man doesn't necessarily mean that they're perfect. And the fact that that, that that bad choice led to other things that weren't so good to is expected and unfortunate. Um, I'm comfortable with that as well. I think that's a, a nice way to look at it. We, we see uh, Abraham, who was considered righteous when he left and went west, but yet what happened after he got there? Yeah, he made some very bad choices, So, but yet he was considered righteous. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a nice way to look at it, too. Yeah. So as we move on, um, the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says, The mind is the channel for most communication, and it must be kept free from toxins and substances that may cloud reason and judgment. With that thought in mind, what kinds of things do we deal with in our society today that would interfere or cloud reason and judgment? Besides alcohol, what kind of things impair reason and judgment? Television. Television. Overeating. Overeating. Lack of sleep. Oh, lack of sleep. There's no question about it. You guys are nailing them all. What else? Too much sugar and also, also overeating, too. Too much sugar and overeating. This is actually out of a, a book called Councils on Temperance and Bible Hygiene. This was written uh, over 100 years ago. It says, but the sh- sugar and milk combined are liable to cause fermentation in the stomach and are thus harmful, and the free use of sugar in any form tends to clog the system. Now, that was written 100 and some years ago. This is from the um, American Heart Association. From the American Heart Association, it says that added sugars to our diet contribute to obesity, diabetes, type 2, increased coronary artery disease. So... The, the science is evidently saying there is something to that idea. Yes? Uh, too much of even good things. Too much of things that are good for us. Mm-hmm. Yes, and too much of things that are good for us. There's no question about it. If you, we, we need water, but too much water will drown. So, yeah, even the good things, we do too much. So I've got alcohol, drugs, certain foods like the high sugar foods, sleep deprivation. How about medications? Certain medications, can they cloud your thinking? Yes? I used to take medication to make me feel fit. I was burning hell for 32 months, and also my eyes rolled back in my head, and I couldn't. I was sleepy all the time. 
So certain medications can, can cloud our thinking. How about medical illnesses? Can illness cloud your thinking? How about this one? Overstudy. Too much studying. Anybody struggling with that one? I'm addicted to studying. Boy, I just had three shots of studying last night. Well, this is what it says out of Councils to Parents and Teachers and Students, page 405. Intemperance in study is a species of intoxication, and those who indulge in it, like the drunkard, wander from safe paths and stumble and fall in the darkness. Did you ever know that? Too much study is like, like a drunkard? Why would that be the case? Hmm. Oh, you fatigue the mind. You wear out. You exhaust the, the neural synapses. And then physical deconditioning? Physical deconditioning? Yes. Oh, porn and passion. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. There's no question. Gambling? Russell? What about a, a, a mischaracterization of God? Not about our thinking. Oh, that, anybody want to expand on that? What do you think about Russell's suggestion? Mischaracterization of God. Believing lies about God. Does that change and alter your thinking? In fact, maybe in a minute here we can uh, weave that back in with some neuroscience and see if we can give examples of how that happens. Video games. Can video games do that? When I was in residency, Nintendo, the very first Nintendo came out. Anybody remember the very first with the Mario? And you go along and then hit the little thing and the mushrooms would come out and the things like, remember that? Okay. I had one. I got one of those. It was so fun. And one weekend I had off and it was like 36 hours straight I played that thing one weekend. (laughs) 36 hours. It's like, and when I tried to go to bed because I knew I had to get up the next morning, I tried to go to bed and all my brain would do was play that video game over and over. I got rid of that thing. I said, man, this is going to kill me. So I got rid of it, but it was horrible. Yeah, it can definitely cloud your thinking and judgment. What about music? Can music cloud? Before Lucifer's fall, what was one of the things he did in heaven? Was he a musician? Do you think he would use those skills against us today? Yeah, he would. We need to be wise. So... With this thought in mind, we want to keep our brains healthy. And Monday, we're going to talk about, Monday, Tuesday, and actually Sunday's lesson, all talk about three days about alcohol. What impact does alcohol have on the brain? And before we do that, I want to, I want to explore some, uh, some brain circuitry with you guys. Anybody recognize who this is? Anybody heard of Phineas Gage? Phineas Gage. Now, Phineas Gage was born in 1823, and in September of 1848, he was occupied as a foreman of a railroad construction crew, and his job was to tamp down. What they would do is they would drill holes into the rock, and they'd put gunpowder in there, and he would come along with this rod, and he would tamp it down before they would set the charges to explode, to blow the rock, to make the the way for the railroad. This uh, particular rod is, as you can see, it's made out of iron. It's... uh, Three, three feet, seven inches long, weighs 13.25 pounds, 13 and a quarter pounds. And at one particular day, he was tamping down, and the gunpowder exploded, blasted this rod through the side of his face through the, uh, and out the top of his head, knocking out, you can see he doesn't have a left eye anymore. And this is kind of a graphic of where it went through. <clears throat> Came out the top of his head, and he was only knocked out for less than a minute or two. And he was awake and alert, talking the whole way back to town, which was a several-mile journey back uh, on a a wagon. And this is uh, showing the area of the brain 
that was damaged. And they, they described the doctors who got in there that he was alert and talking. And as he coughed very heavily during the, uh, during the process of their examination, chunks of brain flew out the top of his head, which was probably what saved his life because it allowed for swelling without, without crushing and killing him because there was less tissue there as the swelling came along. But he survived. He survived this, and you saw these pictures of him. The, is, the question is, how did he change because of this? What part of his brain was damaged? If you notice where this came through, this is the part of the brain right behind your forehead. Uh, when, when we look in Scripture, and the Scripture talks about the seal of God, where is the seal of God in, uh, described happening? In the forehead. It's talking about this part of the brain right here. Something changes in this part of the brain. Well, this part of his brain was damaged. And, and what happened? And by the way, this is the part of your brain where you reason, where you strategize, where you organize, where you plan, where you self-govern, where you process through emotional stuff and, and redirect yourself. Well, this is a description of the doctor uh, after his injury some years later. It says, the equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seems to have been, to- been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference to his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it con- conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operations, which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible." A child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. Previous to his injury, although although untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind was radically changed so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer gauge. Thoughts about that? This part of the brain is really what separates us. This prefrontal cortex is what separates us from the animals, what makes you different than your dog. How do you like this picture? Isn't that nice? Simon Harrison, he's a class member online from Australia, and he drew this and sent this to me for our use, and this uh, helps us see several parts of the brain that we're going to talk about here this morning and then explore what alcohol does to our brain. This is our prefrontal cortex. Now, in our prefrontal cortex, this is the part that was damaged uh, by the injury, uh, that he experienced. This is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's the part, if you go up to the natural hairline, um, right by the edge of your eyebrow, natural hairline right here, that's dorsolateral prefrontal cortex below there. And dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is where you plan, organize, strategize, um, and, and, and so forth. There are other aspects of the prefrontal cortex. This is the ventral medial and the orbital cortex, which are basically right above the orbit of your eye. If you were to go right above the orbit of your eye, that's part of the brain. This part of the brain is together what you might call your conscience. It's what gives you a sense of conviction of wrongdoing. It redirects inappropriate social behavior. So if one of you in this room right now were to stand up and try to undress in front of the rest of us, this part of your cortex would begin going crazy and would start firing out of control and you start feeling very emotionally uncomfortable as it's trying to redirect you. Say, hey, that's not appropriate. Stop what you're doing. 
people with major depression, people who are depressed, this part of the cortex is hyperactive. It's more active than normal. So when people are depressed, they feel a sense of conviction that everything they're doing is wrong. They can't do anything right. No matter how good it is, it's not good enough. And they, and they have this overbearing sense of guilt and inadequacy because this part of the cortex is actually not functioning well. Conversely, if you've ever heard of bipolar disorder, people in a manic state, when people are in a manic state, this part of the brain is actually turned off. It's not working. That's why people in mania can actually, sometimes they'll strip their clothes off and walk around naked and they don't think anything of it at all because this part of the brain is, is turned off in a manic state. These two areas together are, are ventral media, orbital cortex, and the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is what you might call judgment. It's prefrontal cortex where we reason, think, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit working through these areas, enlightening our mind. Anterior cingulate cortex is where we experience empathy, compassion, love, altruism, other-centeredness, caring and regard for other people. And when we meditate on a God of love, uh, science has shown us in studies at the University of Pennsylvania that uh, just 12 minutes a day, for 30 days, meditating on a God of love, we can see growth in the anterior cingulate cortex. This part of the brain where we love other people grows. This part of the brain is wired down into this part over here called the amygdala. And the amygdala is where we experience fear and anxiety. And when the anterior cingulate cortex fires or grows stronger, it actually calms the amygdala so we experience less fear, just like the scripture says, perfect love casts out all fear. So as our love circuits grow, our fear goes down, neurobiologically. Conversely, when the fear circuits fire, fear circuits will actually impair the functioning of the prefrontal cortex circuits. That's why people, maybe you've heard of somebody that has test anxiety, They've studied, they know the material, and then they start uh, becoming very nervous and anxious. That means this area is firing. When it does, it makes this area less capable of working, and so they don't score as well. Or you've seen somebody who maybe has um, social phobia, where they're afraid or they get nervous in front of crowds. And so somebody says, you know, I've got an announcement to make to this group, and, and they know exactly what they're going to say, and they come up here, and, and then they look out and they freeze. What happened? This part of the brain fired, and it paralyzes or impairs this part of the brain. So... Fear circuits actually are mediums that bring pain and suffering uh, and death. Not only does it impair prefrontal cortex circuits for learning, uh, when the fear circuits fire, it, it causes us to have adrenaline rushes. Uh, if we had a loud bang right now, boom, we all startled. You get that little adrenaline surge. When the adrenaline surge happens, it causes blood to shunt out of our guts into our muscles so we're ready for that fight or flight response, which means that the blood is not in our gut but in our muscles. We don't grow as well. Interesting research has just shown that children growing up in, uh, in high war zone areas in Iraq compared to children growing up in the more rural areas of Iraq uh, have actually stunted growth. They're shorter, measurably shorter, because they're not growing as well due to the high stress. So we don't st grow well when we're in fear. We don't grow well physically. Um, when we're in fear, we become very self-preservation or, or self-oriented, so we don't grow well relationally, and we don't grow well intellectually. Fear is the medium of death, whereas love is the medium of, of, of life. With all this in mind, understanding these circuits, uh, we want to keep our prefrontal cortex circuits healthy. There's what process these things, calm those circuits, uh, those fear circuits. What happens uh, when we use substances of some kind? What happens to our brain? Well, Daniel Amen uh, has used uh, SPECT imaging, which is single photon emission computerized tomography, uh, images studies, and I'll show you what this is in a second, to help us see functionally what areas of the brain are active, what areas of the brain are having impairments. 
this is just a, a, a brain taken out of a, a person who had been healthy, was in an accident, died. And so this is what a generally healthy brain would look like if it was not inside your head. Uh, this is what a healthy scan, a spec scan, and these scans are looking for blood flow and metabolism. And you see a nice, fluid, smooth flow and metabolism that we can see from a healthy brain. This is what an Alzheimer's brain looks like. And do you notice some differences here? And it's not the color. Don't notice the color. The color is not what's important. What's important is, do you notice how these things, these things that look like valleys, we call them sulci, um, the, the high mountain areas are called gyri, uh, but do you notice how the valleys are much wider and deeper here than they are over here? Well, in a brain, it's a confined space. The only way for the valleys to get deeper and wider is for the mountains to get smaller. And so what you see when you see these big valleys is you're seeing shrinkage. And the mountains, of course, are where your neurons are. And so we've had billions of neurons die in this brain. That's why these mountains, and so it's called atrophy or shriveling up of the brain. That's what happens in an Alzheimer's brain. This next brain is um, a picture, uh, well, this is the scan of somebody with Alzheimer's dementia. Do you notice the difference in that scan from a normal scan? We've got significant deficiencies of metabolism and blood flow because we've had marked loss of brain tissue. This is Pick's disease. Pick's disease is a different type of dementia, and it only affects the prefrontal cortex, whereas Alzheimer's affects the entire cortex. So the whole brain was affected. In this one, you'll see the, the posterior regions of the brain still look very meaty and healthy, but you notice the prefrontal cortex. You see how shriveled up, how big the valleys are here. So this is the most important part of the brain, and this is what's being attacked in Pick's disease. What does a Pick's disease scan look like? That's what a Pick's disease scan looks like. Do you notice these huge voids up here where we're not having a lot of activity going on, not a lot of metabolism? What happens from addictions? And this is an MRSI scan that actually is it's basically taking a slice through this way, like slicing you down like this and looking straight back at it. And uh, this is a normal brain. You see how thick and, and meaty these areas are here, not very many valleys. Over here, see the big dark areas? Dark areas are the valleys where there's no brain tissue. And so we've got a lot of brain loss. This is actually a just an actual MRI scan, so we can actually see the brain tissue that's been lost. What does a... a uh, Scan look like one of the spec scans look like? This is an alcohol brain. So you notice somebody who's using alcohol heavily, we've got lots of, again, not only do we lose tissue on the MRI scans, but functionally we're losing um, uh, activity in the brain because the neurons are being damaged and they're not there to act, uh, act normally. This is a 24-year-old with a two-year history of cocaine use. Two years, 24 years of age, so at 22, started using cocaine, and look at the damage that's happened here with loss of metabolism because of the cocaine use. And it's not just on a scan like this. Does the life of a person who uses cocaine look differently? Um, and this is, this is a 28-year-old with an eight-year history of methamphetamine use. So cocaine, methamphetamines, both very similar, stimulant drugs, and you can see the massive voids. And this is a, a woman with four years of cocaine meth use. This is what she looked like. This is four years later after four years of methamphetamine use. Does it make a difference in us? It's huge, huge stress when we use these types of things. Marked release of inflammatory factors in the body, um, cytokines and, 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 uh, and free radicals, and it really ages the body significantly to do these things. Uh, this is a 39-year-old with a 25-year history of heroin use. And you'll notice how the huge, huge deficits here from the heroin use over 25 years. 
this is the underside. Now, the other scans we were looking at was from the top down. I feel like we were looking this way. Now we're going to look at the bottom up and see what the brain looks like. And this is a 28-year-old with a 10-year history of weekend marijuana use. So 10 years, weekend marijuana use. You know, this is prefrontal cortex. This is where we reason, think. This is our conscience here. This is the orbital cortex we're looking at here. So our sense of right and wrong uh, is being impaired by this substance. Here's a 16-year-old with a two-year history of daily marijuana use. So two years from 14 to 16, look what's happened to this brain. Huge voids in prefrontal cortex. These people will have impairments in judgment, impairments in in concentration, impairments in focus, impairments in motivation, impairments in drive. They'll be apathetic. They'll be listless. They won't have a sense of conviction of right and wrong. They really won't care much about anything because of the damage they've done to their brain. Yes? Is this deterioration in the brain because of like a chemical reaction, because of the drug, or because while they're on it, they no longer are using that part of their brain, and so because they're not using it, it's shrinking? Excellent question. Both. Both. Good question. We're also altering the vasculature that supplies the energy. See, for the brain to be healthy, it not only has to have healthy um, brain cells, the neurons and the glia, it has to have a healthy blood supply because the blood supply supplies the nutrients to keep it healthy and take it away. And a lot of these substances actually um, plug the, the microvasculature and diminish blood supply to the brain as well. So that's a factor in there as well. If they quit, quit, is there repair? Yes, the brain will begin repairing and healing. This is what our body does. Our body is designed to do that. People, and this is throughout the whole body, brain, lungs, everything, a heavy smoker who quits smoking, the lungs after a period of years will be healthier than the day they quit, but not as healthy as if they never never started. Same thing with the brain. The brain will repair itself, and it will be better than the day they quit. There's no question, but it will never be as healthy as it was if they had never used these substances to start with. Does that make sense to everybody? And this is a 45-year-old with a 27-year history of smoking and heavy caffeine use. Cigarettes and caffeine, 27 years. So this is not one cup of coffee a day. This is not one Coke a day. This is a pot to two pots of coffee a day with cigarettes. Does anybody know what MDMA is? Common street name. Ecstasy. You've heard of ecstasy? Okay. This is actually a 21-year-old. This is the baseline and the red, this is a PET scan now. It's a similar scan showing actual, actual metabolic activity in the brain. The bright red colors up here shows lots of activity. Lots of neurons are firing. Lots of glucose is being used. Blue shows where the ventricles of the brain are. So there's, there's actually fluid here. So there's no neurons. So you would see no activity. That's why there's nothing. There's no neurons here. It's the ventricles. And then uh, a, a gradation of activity here. So we see a, lot, a really active brain here at baseline. One hit of, of ecstasy two weeks later after one hit. So two weeks later, do you see how still hypoactive or, or reduced in the activity of this brain is two weeks after one hit of this drug? And this is showing the pleasure center of the brain. The pleasure center of your brain is called nucleus accumbens. This is where you experience the sense of fun, reward, joy, happiness, uh, elation. And you'll notice that addictions damage the centers of the brain. This is a normal. And you see the red is nice active activity here in this area of the brain. Notice in the alcoholic, they don't have as much ability to experience pleasure because they've damaged these, these sections. Over here is cocaine. And notice how much even more damaging cocaine is. But notice obesity. Obesity actually damages the pleasure centers of the brain as well. You don't experience life as joyful as you would if you had normal weight. So obesity is also damaging to the brain. Anyway, who wants a brain like one of these? But I wanted to walk through with you. There's a reason why we don't do these things. Do you see that there's a good reason why we don't do these things? 
I've put in the notes, by the way, um, some of the pictures, the brain pictures are in the notes, and I've also put a web link in the notes, so all those scans from the Amen Clinic you can actually go see online for those who'd like to follow up and look at those some more. What happens if we damage our prefrontal cortex? What are the consequences? What do we see in real life? Do we see people have greater... uh, What are the fruits of the Spirit? Can anybody name the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, okay, gentleness, meekness, and self-control or temperance. Now, where do we experience love in the brain? Into the cortex, part of the prefrontal cortex. Where do we experience self-restraint? Prefrontal cortex. If you notice, every one of the fruits of the spirit, prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex. If you read in um, Romans chapter 1, starting around verse 31, and uh, other places in Timothy, Paul describes those who have been given over. Those who have rebelled and refused to the Holy Spirit in their life. And, and it describes their character traits. Anybody remember any of Just throw some of them out. They behave like brute beasts. Okay, so they're impulsive, they're moody, they're arrogant, they're haughty, they're, they're rebellious, they disobey their parents. This is what's described. Which part of the brain is being active here? That lower limbic system area. It's not being restrained or governed. Prefrontal cortex is no longer in, in control. This is what substances do. This is what Satan's goal is. He wants to actually damage our neural circuitry to impair our ability to reason, think, and develop healthy character. Uh, somebody read the second paragraph in Monday's lesson that begins, Interestingly. Interestingly, long before any scientific description of the negative effects of alcohol in the fetus, the fetal alcohol syndrome, Samson's mother was warned not to take alcohol during her pregnancy. Solomon also warns against the effects of alcohol, specifically wine and beer. From his observation, and possibly even experience, he describes how alcohol changes and modifies behavior, usually leading to regrets. Isaiah graphically describes how inappropriately priests behave when intoxicated, confirming the warnings given given by other writers. Paul, too, has words of caution regarding alcohol. Thoughts? First off, before we even go into what, what we're going to explore, did anyone here think I'm promoting the use of alcohol? No. Good, because I'm not. <laughs> what I am going to do, though, is we're going to analyze the use of Scripture. What do you think about the use of Scripture here? The story of, of uh, Samson and the, and the connecting it with fetal alcohol syndrome. Do you think this is why the parents were primarily uh, told not to use alcohol? No for fetal alcohol syndrome reasons? Or was Samson put under a particular vow called a Nazarite vow? And what's a Nazarite vow? They were to avoid not only alcohol, but raisins and anything that comes from the grapevine. Grape juice, raisins, fresh grapes. Couldn't eat any of that. If you eat fresh grapes or raisins during pregnancy, will your child get fetal alcohol syndrome? No. No. I'm not suggesting drinking is a healthy thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm questioning, is this really the the reason why this instruction was given? Not only could they... Well, I'll I'll just read it to you out of uh, Numbers 6, 1 through 5. 
Speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord, as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drinks and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During the entire period of his vow or separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy and uh, until the period of his separation to the Lord is over, he must let the hair of his head grow long. Jesus took that vow. He said, I won't pick up the fruit of the vine. Yes. Think he's got really long hair by now? He doesn't say anything about his hair. He doesn't say anything about his hair. Mm-hmm. I'm just suggesting that, that there's no question alcohol is harmful. But is this the, the, the point of that particular lesson? I don't know. Maybe God had it in mind as well. What about... The words of Solomon, not to use alcohol. Is that, is that an absolute truth? Solomon gave, a, gave the word to never use alcohol. Or did he give contradictory word? In Proverbs chapter 31, it says, It is not for, king, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer lest they drink and forget the laws and the decrees and deprive the oppressed of their rights. Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Hmm. Oh, she said it was used during the Civil War, during surgery, that they would give alcohol to people to intoxicate them so they could, you know, amputate a leg or whatever they had to do. Mm-hmm. You see, is, is the scripture uh, absolutist on there never a time and a place that alcohol can be used? Certainly not to be used for recreation, but are there medicinal places that it might be the best choice given the circumstances we find ourselves in? How about with Paul told Timothy that one of the reasons he had a witchy stomach was because he only drank water and he needed to take most of the wine down there's another example that was going to get perfect. Uh, Tim, she, he, uh, Timothy was advised by Paul to drink a little wine once in a while to help his stomach. What about in Deuteronomy? When God told them, Deuteronomy chapter 14, to take their tithe and bind fermented wine and come and rejoice before the Lord. And, and the Hebrew is fermented, strong drink, not the unfermented wine. Yes. In the examples that, like what she just mentioned and what you were mentioned when Solomon was talking about when to drink wine, they're all un, they're all the results of sin. They're dealing with undesirable circumstances, and God is using methods to get us through that. It's like taking any medication, but you don't take an antibiotic if you don't have a problem that you're trying to deal with right then. You don't use alcohol, like you said, as recreation. It would be something that would help you get through a surgery or something that... That you might not otherwise get through. I'd rather have modern anesthetics. Mo- mo- yes, of course we would. <laughs> of course we would. But modern anesthetics are not without their consequences or risks either, are they? Yeah. No, I think that is the principle involved. What, and so, so the reason I'm taking us down this line of thinking is, do we look for cookie-cutter rules or do we look for principles? principles. And what's the principle that underlines all this? Don't use anything that's going to distract your ability if there's a better alternative. So how about, uh, for instance, you've, you, you're going to die unless they amputate your leg because it's gangrene and it's uh, 1883. 
And they can do that by have seven guys hold you down while you're awake, or they can get you drunk first. Which, which, which way are you going? Okay, that doesn't mean you're going to enjoy that, that drunk experience. It's not for joy, is it? No. Yes, but it would be less damaging. You understand having being held down to have your leg amputated while you're alert? There would be serious neurological consequence to that. There's a hand over here. Yes. I don't think God wants to stop us from having real pleasure at all. He just gives us the guides and the rules as to what, I mean, things like cocaine and marijuana and all those things, heroin, they're not good for you. So he gives us the guide so that we can have real pleasure. Oh, I like what he said, real pleasure. And let's think about real pleasure briefly. Um, real pleasure is God designed it because God did design us to have pleasure, but God designed us to have pleasure with the higher cortex activating the pleasure centers. You ever struggle with a problem? Maybe, maybe you've struggled for months with a problem, but then one day the light went on and you got the answer. Ever had that happen? Was there a sense of pleasure? The higher cortex activating pleasure centers. How about the, the, the day your first child was born? They put that child in your arms. Was there some pleasure? Yes. How about, uh, well, we have a newlywed couple in here just back from their honeymoon. How about the, uh, the, 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 the joy of a, of a new marriage? Is, is, is there pleasure in that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes? Yeah. What was that? I didn't hear that. <laughs> okay. Sure. Okay. Uh, how about you've just run, if you're a runner, you've just run six miles or, and you get that runner's high. Is there pleasure in that? Yes. Yes. Oh. See, God has just... <laughs> Okay, I said if you're a runner. Obviously, he's not a runner. <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, God designs us to experience pleasure, but it's always through a higher cortical activation of the pleasure centers. What Satan wants to do is he wants to dethrone the higher cortex, and he wants to go directly to the pleasure centers, the nucleus accumbens, and activate them directly, which is what drugs do. But when that happens, it actually damages those pleasure centers. As you saw the scans I gave you a minute ago with, with alcohol and cocaine, how your, your reward center is damaged, and you can't experience the same levels of pleasure anymore. So you have to take higher and higher doses of the substance. This is why you get addicted to it, and you end up burning out these circuits in life and things. You lose joy and become bland and blah and so forth. Um, so yes, we are to experience pleasure, but only as God designed it, and Satan wants to short-circuit that. Tuesday's lesson, it asks the question, is alcohol good for the heart? Did anybody read Tuesday's lesson? It did a good job of demonstrating why those studies that suggest that are, are, are wrong. Because those studies were very flawed. They had people who were former alcoholics uh, in the group that wasn't using alcohol. Think that through. Former alcoholic who's now recovered is in the group that is the comparator group for those who are still drinking wine in a modest amount. They've already damaged themselves significantly, and they've got all kinds of health problems, but they're now not drinking. And we're going to say, see, if you drink a little alcohol, you have a better outcome than these guys. Well, they're, I mean, that's pretty, pretty messed up. No, you don't have to drink alcohol. Alcohol, ethanol, is not healthy for your body. What is healthy are the various cannons and um, chemicals that are in plants that give plants their color. And those things have antioxidant properties and are helpful to us. So it would be, you can get those benefits out of grape juice. Could you say it's like what you were talking about with the drugs and a while ago, that if you're not going to exercise, you're not going to eat healthy, you're not going to get rest, you're not going to drink water, then probably if you're going to be overweight, you're going to be probably it's a good idea for you to drink a glass of wine before you go to bed at night. <laughs> I would still know. No, 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 no. It's still not. No, absolutely. Because wine actually interferes with normal sleep architecture. And you will actually even worsen your sleep cycles and you won't get the normal uh, the, the, the biorhythms. You won't get the normal deep sleep, restorative sleep. You won't get the normal REM and, and memories transfer during REM. Um, and so, no, it's not good to do that wine. 
One of the things that really needs to be socially well-known is the effects of alcohol during pregnancy because you don't have to have fetal alcohol syndrome to be damaged. And um, when I took special ed classes when I was teaching high school, they said the number one cause of these learning disabilities is alcohol during pregnancy. And, um, and even small amounts can damage a fetus during pregnancy. It's not clear exactly when that takes place or exactly how, but um, it's very dangerous. Of young people with special needs in our schools, I wonder if we're going to have enough normal people to educate them. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's an excellent point. Excellent point. Uh, alcohol it is, it does not provide any real benefit uh, at all. And two drinks of alcohol a week can contribute to depression and interfere with antidepressant therapy. So if somebody has depression and they just drink two beers a week, that can continue their depression and interfere with their wellness. Uh, Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson. And we're going on to temperance in all things. And it... Uh, Third paragraph says, temperance is so much more than not smoking cigarettes and not taking illegal drugs or drinking alcohol or even tea, coffee, and soft drinks. And that is because even good things, when taken to excess, can cause problems. This was said earlier. Even good things, when taken to excess, can cause problems. Um, have you ever known anyone who was on the health message and they were some of the most unhealthy people in the church? Yes. You know, they're going to do that health message even if it kills me. Yeah. I have patients, actually, who come to see me now. There's a kind of this new quasi-slant on traditional eating disorders. Traditional eating disorders are anorexia, bulimia, anorexia nervosa, bulimia. There's this new slant that's emerged in the last uh, 10 years or so where young people are getting into, I'm going to eat healthy. And so they have this idea that I'm going to eat healthy. And so because they're going to eat healthy, they avoid so many different foods. They restrict their diet down to a very narrow little diet, and they become very unhealthy. Malnourished, exactly. They become unhealthy and malnourished because they, but, but they have this idea. Well, I don't want to eat that because it's unhealthy. I don't eat that because it's unhealthy. And they actually have, uh, make decisions that, that undermine their health. Um, why does this happen, I think? Because part of it is people focus on the do's and the don'ts. Don't eat this. Do eat that. Don't drink this. Do eat, do drink that. Instead of understanding what we talked about earlier, principles involved. And the principle, and this goes, a lot of Adventists will read writings of Ellen White, and she will have a lot of things, you should never drink this, you should never eat that, don't do this, don't do that. And they take this and they make a, a cookie cutter list of rules of all the things you should do, rather than understanding the principle. Uh, and the principles are doing what is in the best interest of restoring us to the most godly pattern, in other words, restoring us back to God's original ideal on Adam as best we can. There was a story, um, if you remember, Ellen White used to write things like, don't use drug medications, these are poisons, uh, they should never be used. You'll find some strong words about this. And because of that, there are people in our church who won't take any medications. If you actually do a little research and find out what were drug medications in her day, mercury, arsenic, strychnine, laudanum, quinine, these types of things were the uh, drugs in her days. Um, and most of them are, are poisons. It just so happens, though, that there was a missionary in uh, the Far East who had a son, 12 years of age, who got malaria. And the doctors there wanted to give the boy quinine. And the missionary refused to allow the quinine to be given because of the writings of Ellen White. The testimony is never to allow these drugs. And the boy died. He happened to have an interview with Ellen White later and asked her directly, Would I have sinned? to allow them to give quinine if we knew of no other way to save his life. You know what she said? No. We're to do the best that we can. 
In other words, she was never about cookie-cutter rules. She was about principles. We're to do the best we can. We're supposed to restore health. It's much better to use a little quinine and save his life than not use the quinine and see him die. That is the principle. And this is why I think we get into these problems is because people have rules and they have this false security. Well, you know what? I uh, get up at the right times. I, um, I go to church at the right times. I pay my 10% in tithe. I, I don't eat meat and, and I don't even eat cheese. Mm, check that out, guys. Okay? And because I don't eat these things, then everything will be right. I will be in heaven. Can you eat your way into heaven? Can you eat your way out? Yeah, you can't eat your way in, but you can eat your way out. You can. Yeah, there's no question. Because you can destroy yourself by eating and ingesting the wrong things. Um, Last paragraph says, Ellen G. White caught the essence of this true temperance with this simple statement. True temperance teaches us to dispense entirely with everything hurtful and use judiciously that which is healthful. Entirely everything is hurtful and meaning uh, things that harm. But can something, is it black and white, those things that cause harm? How about a knife, a really sharp knife, in the hands of a murderer or in the hands of a surgeon? Is the knife harmful? Or is it the hands who's wielding it? Wielding it? How about alcohol for recreation or for medicinal uses? How about 100% oxygen on healthy lungs? Good idea, Karen? 100% oxygen in healthy lungs will cause uh, fibrosis of the lungs. It's not a good idea. But how about 100% oxygen in somebody in respiratory failure on a ventilator? Does it matter the circumstance where we use these things? Antibiotics for viral infections. How about that? Bad idea. How about for meningitis? Good idea. Amphetamines for recreation. How about amphetamines for narcolepsy? ADHD. Oh, maybe, it's, maybe that's okay. That's a good idea. How about wheat bread for somebody with celiac disease? No. How about... How about Peanut butter and strawberries with somebody with an allergy to them. No. You see, don't we have to use our judgment as to what is actually harmful and where and in what circumstance? We can't really give cookie-cutter rules that are going to apply to all people in all circumstances. And this is why we aren't to be judges of other people. But do you ever find that sometimes there's a hierarchy within the church? Those who dress in certain ways and eat certain ways are definitely holier than those don't. Let's look at the Pharisees in Christ's day. Was there a hierarchy based on what they did? Yes. Uh, which is better, traditionalism or radicalism? He says, which is better, traditionalism or radicalism? How about a radical traditionalist? <laughs> <laughs> so, are there some things, though, that are harmful in all situations? In all situations. Okay, there are some absolutes. How about deviations from the law of love? Deviating from the law of love, harmful always. Yes. That's a principle. It takes higher order thinking, though. See, we don't have to grow up. And this is what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 5. He says, by this time you should be adults on spiritual meat, but you're still little kids on spiritual milk. And he goes on to describe what they're focused on. In, in, in Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, you're still worried about the do's and the don'ts. The things that, lead, that require repentance, the bad acts. And see, kids like to be told, give me, tell me what, just tell me where the world, tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, I know what the boundaries are, I want to be safe, I don't want to violate, just tell me what to do. 
Give me the rules. Right? Kids like the rules. And a lot of us in the church are still like that. Tell us what the rules are, God. We'll do the rules. But it's not about rules. It's about principles. It's about the design template for light. It's about the law of love versus the law of self-interest that are competing for our hearts. Are we willing to give of ourselves to help others? Are we, are we only interested in promoting our own way? These principles require higher-order thinking. Does God prefer that we avoid harmful substances because he says so? I said don't do it, and does he prefer us to avoid it for that reason? Is there a better reason? What if we don't avoid, let me add it this way, what if we don't avoid those substances? What if we know he says not to do it, but we rebel and use those substances anyway? What will God do to us? If you rebel in his face, curse him to his face and say, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it, and you go out and use the substances anyway, what will God do to you? He will love you and try to heal you. That's what he will do. He will pursue you. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid. What did God do? He came after them. He came after them. And God is after every one of us to save us and heal us. And there's this other thing sometimes taught that if you don't do it, He's offering you, but if you rebel, well, He will. He will kill you. He will get you. You better watch out. Parents, you got got kids that have ever rebelled? Ever did things that you didn't want them to do? Is there ever a time that you want to kill them? Okay, not that moment. <laughs> I mean, after you've after you've counted to ten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, we really don't want. We want to save our kids, right? We want to deliver them. We want to. We want to heal them. We don't want to hurt them. Yes. It's interesting that in the sacrificial system. There were sacrifices for inadvertent sin, but there was nothing for, for willful sin. And what do you think that means? I think it's impossible for God to heal us unless we're willing to come in and try to follow Him. And those things which are inadvertently done, which are damaging us, He wants to get rid of, even though we don't know about it until later. Yeah, and so the lesson is not that... How many of, how many of you have never done a willful sin? If I see a hand, that would be a willful sin. <laughs> okay so it doesn't mean that God isn't interested but it means exactly what you say that God can't help those who don't want to be helped as long as we remain in a state of rebellion and willful obstinance to him he can't help us it's, only, it's what he said that the sick do not need the physician excuse me the, the well do not need the physician it's only the sick that do and so he's saying if you, until you come to the point that you admit that you've got a problem I can't help you as long as you're insistent on keeping me out of your life, there's nothing I can do to heal you. I can present evidence, try to win you, woo you, draw you, tell you of my love, but in the end, you have to let me or I can't help you. And I think that's what that means. Exactly right. The law is not given for the righteous. It's given for the lawbreaker. Yep. The wicked. In Timothy, the law is not given for the righteous, but for the wicked. Why is the law given, Paul says? To bring us to Christ. To bring us to Christ, to diagnose. The law was given so that sin might abound. Why do we have an MRI scanner? To expose health or to expose disease? That's what the law is given for, to show us how sick we are and how terminal our condition is so that we could come to Christ for healing. That was his purpose. Excellent. All right. Um, So what does all this then say about God? 
that he wants us to not just simply be uh, children doing cookie-cutter rules, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, but he actually wants us to understand, think for ourselves, and do this because it makes sense to us. Does that give you any new insights or perspectives on God? Does it say anything about him that he wants it this way? What does it say? Complete unselfish laws. Does that push you away from or draw you to him? Does that make you want to rebel or does that make you want to follow him and comply? See, this is the only way God can win his war. That's why it says in Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. God has might and power. There's no question he could force every knee in the universe down. He could make us all programmed robots like that. But to do so, what does it destroy? Love and individuality. We're all just now programmed machines. We have no ability to love or care or give. He doesn't want that. He really wants you to follow him only because you agree with him and you freely choose to do so. Thursday's lesson. First paragraph. It says, The philosophy of many today is that our bodies belong to us and we can do with them as we please. Some may justify this approach even further by adding the argument that in so living they harm no one but themselves. We know, though, that this kind of reasoning is wrong. Is it wrong? Why is it wrong? If you decide you're going to go out and smoke, you're going to go out and drink, you're going to go out and do drugs, and it's my body, I can do with my body what I want, why is that wrong thinking? Yes? Because you're damaging your own genes, one thing. So if you have children, you're handing down something that is hurtful to them. And then secondly, it damages everybody that cares anything about you. Oh, excellent. Two excellent points. Number one, when you damage yourself physically, you do alter your gene expression, and you pass that gene expression on to your yet-to-be-born children. So you don't just harm yourself, you harm your prodigy, your children to come. So number one, yes, you can't harm yourself without harming others if you're going to have children. But you also said, how about those who love you? Do you harm people that love you when you harm yourself? Yes, no, maybe? Yes. Yes. She says that not only do we hurt them because those people care about us, but if we persist in that, we damage our capacities for love, our capacities for empathy, and then we actually act aggressively and hurtfully and spitefully and maliciously towards other people. So we will, over time, if we do these things to harm ourselves, we will turn ourselves into people who are not compassionate, have no care, have no regard. And so we then become agents of evil to actually directly hurt other people. So we can't just hurt ourselves without being turned into an agent that will, in the end, hurt other people. That's an excellent insight. Yes, back in the back, yes. Our bodies are the symbol of God. Would you imagine anyone in this room taking a machete and a torch and going over to the church and just totally ransacking the inside of it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I had loving parents, but I figured out early on, uh, and they gave us good advice, but I figured out early on that I'd rather see my brothers and sisters do it or my cousins than me. <laughs> so I could sit there and watch them as they experimented on their own brains so it wasn't happening to my brain. So you were learning, learning by observation rather than experience. What do you say to somebody who says, look, I have to experience it in order to learn? No. What do you say to that? You damage your prefrontal cortex. You damage your prefrontal cortex? 
So experiencing some of these things actually impairs the very cortex you need to learn, so you actually can't learn as well. I like that. That's true. Yes. Yeah, like me and my sister had a problem hurting ourselves because our father was abusive. And I think it's what made us angry. It's like I still have a problem. It took her 14 years to overcome, and I still struggled with it before she overcame it. So that, that problem that somebody else was hurting themselves actually passed on and hurt other people. Well, he is abusive. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forget him, but back. There's some trust involved in here. We, we are blessed with the knowledge to be able to tell, just like with the different brain scans and stuff, that we can see objectively the cause of some of the, some of the abuse choices that we make as humans. Uh, and when I, when I work with kids and we talk about uh, things like sexual purity, for example, I tell them that God puts them together, He knows how you're wired. When we choose not to follow this plan for sexual purity, you know from your family, from other things, you can see the damage that happens. But even if, you know, when we don't know the whole story, there's a, there's a place for trust. There are things that we still yet don't know about how our bodies work. And when God says, um, this is my plan for you and your body and your family and yourself, and I'm telling you this because I love you, because I made you, I know how you built. Um, the evidence that we have, great, we can use that too. But when we're not sure, it's a great time for trust. I think this is an excellent point. Excellent point. There's a place for trust because we're finite. He's infinite. He knows future events. We, he knows the neurobiology that we haven't yet to discover about ourselves. All these things are excellent points. But the trust comes back to a core issue. What kind of being do you see God to be? Do you see him? Are you, is, is God presented to you? Are you told to trust this being who says, trust me or I'll burn you in hell? Trust me or I'll use my power to torture you. Now, try this with your children. Hey, I love you kids. Trust me. But by the way, if you disobey, I'm going to sneak up tonight while you're in bed, pour gas on you and light you on fire. But trust me. The trust gets undermined, doesn't it? Uh, you, you said a moment ago there was a dad that beat you. That be, did it cause you to trust him more? No. Tr- see, trust is based on trustworthiness of the person or the being, right? So Jesus came and said, I have come that you might have life. I have, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He is the exact representation of the Father according to Hebrews 1.3. So our trust needs to be based on the evidences of God's true character as revealed in Christ who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the form of a servant. Now, I've heard some people recently suggest that, well, they don't want to worship a God who's all-powerful and above everybody else and have this kind of hierarchical system. That is a human projection. If you actually understand God's kingdom, who is the greatest, according to Jesus, in the kingdom of God? The least among us. If you want to be great, you must be. If you want to be first, you must be. And so Christ, who was on the throne of heaven, humbled himself all the way into human form, all the way down to the cross and gave himself for us. So true greatness in God's kingdom is the kingdom of self-sacrifice. And the reason that God, uh, Christ's name is exalted above all other names is because he's given himself completely for our welfare and good. And the reason God is the greatest of all is not just because of his power, but from him emanates and he gives of himself constantly to sustain, restore, pro- protect, uplift, heal, regenerate. He is great because he gives, not because he has power. Yes. That's the reason that we practice temperance, so that we can give to others. Because if we have the best health that we're capable of, we're capable of good work. 
Excellent point. And that was in my notes. I, I, did, I skipped over it somewhere, so I'm glad you brought that up. That The reason we practice temperance, as she says, is because it allows us to be better givers. And another way to say that is, when we don't practice temperance, we restrict or take away our freedom and our ability. Somebody eats Big Mac and fries four days a week and puts on 350 pounds, they are not as capable of ministering. In fact, they will very soon be someone that needs to be ministered unto. As we maintain a temperate lifestyle, we not only have better minds, we have better physical health, and we are more capable of being conduits to minister and give to others. That's another beautiful reason we enter into that circle of love that the universe is designed to to run upon. Does that make sense? It's beautiful. Yeah, I think these are great points. So when when we hurt ourselves and we think we can just hurt ourselves, we hurt those who love us, we hurt our uh, progeny that come later, um, and... We hurt by example those in our, if we have children already, we hurt by example the, the unhealthy patterns that we live, but we also hurt society. We impact others in the, in the community by the financial burdens we put on them for the unhealthy lifestyle we live. We increase in crime to supply us with the drugs that we decide that we're going to use. The increase in healthcare costs to pay for the sicknesses that we have. Our taxes go up. Everything goes up. The whole community bears a burden for our unhealthy lifestyle. We never get away with it. Yes. Yeah, you know, I guess maybe I have a different uh, perspective too. That it comes from having to spend too many, too many days and nights in emergency rooms. I've, I've, you know, I've seen too many people who will never walk, will never, you know, be in wheelchairs, quadriplegic, who are, who are, who are injured, their lives are completely changed because somebody else was intemperate, somebody was driving drunk or on drugs, or somebody, you know, uh, on some kind of loose. So they don't just injure themselves, do they? A lot of times, yeah, you tell them that it's the same drunk who tells somebody, well, I'm only doing it to myself. No, you just run into a station, a car full of people, and you just injure, you kill three family members and injure two others very seriously. People don't think about those kinds of things at all. And then, if you've done that, just think of the consequence. Let's say you've done that. You were high. You were strung out, you were drunk, you ran a median, you hit somebody, you killed a wife and her two kids or something. Now, how do you like to live with that the rest of your life? Is there a price you're going to pay? Will you have guilt? Will your conscience be seared? Will you... they, well, they pay a price too, but I, I, yes, absolutely. But will, will you just be able to walk away from that scot-free? No, no, you damage yourself, yes. Problem texting and cell phones are the new drugs. Texting and cell phones are new drugs. Of course, this is why young people shouldn't have texting capabilities on their phones if they're driving, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Old people too. Old people too. Yeah, because they're even slower and worse at texting, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, we don't have time to finish the last little bit in Thursday's lesson, which was about our price being paid, our redemption price being paid. We've covered that ground before. It's in the notes if you'd like to see it. Um, let's close with prayer, and then we'll have a few couple of announcements. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We pray that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds. Uh, as we do this battle with our own selves, uh, as we try to cooperate with you for the development of our of our prefrontal cortexes, our, our character to be like you, uh, inspire us with truth. Fill us with your spirit. Uh, convict us of the right and the wrong. Give us the power uh, to make those choices that would be in harmony with your will, we pray in your holy name. Amen.